Welcome to another episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 60 years, my passion has been everything aviation. And this month, we celebrate the 75th anniversary of the creation of the United States Air Force, where I flew KC-135s for over 24 years. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we interview and talk with some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. We get to hear their stories, but more importantly, what did they learn from these extraordinary and extreme events that they were involved with while flying airplanes all over the world? Our purpose is to hear vets and these aviators share their stories and to increase critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. Some of these stories you will hear on the Lessons from the Cockpit show for the very first time. Support for the Lessons from the Cockpit show comes solely from Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. I want all of you to go to Wall Pilot and take a look at the 125 ready to print four foot, six foot, and eight foot images of aircraft that are printed on vinyl that you can peel off and stick to the walls of your home or office. Many people just frame them the way they are, but please go by there because that's how we get support for this show. And on today's show, we are interviewing and talking with retired Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Felmuth. My boss, when I was at Kadena, he flew F-15C models, light grays, and F-15E strike eagles, dark grays. And he's here to tell us about what it was like flying in the Eagle, but also as an American pilot on 9-11 and the things that happened to him. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's begin the Lessons from the Cockpit Show with Jeff Falmouth, my good friend, Flounder. Colonel Jeff Falmouth, welcome to the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. Man, do you and I go back a ways. Uh, just a few years. Just a few years. <laughs> the 90s. I'm going, I remember this young captain walking into the safe in Okinawa going, what am I going to do with a tanker guy in fighter planning? Best deal I ever had was you walking into that office. You're a great boss. I appreciate all the things that I learned from you and you taking me under your wing and teaching me how the fighter bros do business. You know, I don't know if you know this, but I got in trouble with the tanker squadron. Well, you want to be one of those guys. You want to be a fighter. And it wasn't that I wanted to be a fighter guy. It's that I wanted to learn what, how you guys did business so that I could fit the tankers better into how you did things. Well, that was one of the things that really impressed me because when the compost wing formed there at Kadena, we weren't an objective wing, we were a composite wing. And it was, uh, I went from being a major worker for Lieutenant Colonel and the DO was two doors down the hall to being a major who worked for a major who worked for a major. I think that's when I got to the Lieutenant Colonel and he was only the flight commander. And the ops group commander was across the runway, the other side of the base. And yeah. I was the only F-15 guy in like a 15-man shop. Had an AWACS guy for a boss who couldn't spell the word fighter. He had a tanker guy for his boss. The flight commander was a tanker guy. I was basically told, we're not, we don't know what you do. Just keep on doing it because we're not going to learn. <laughs> and then uh, and tanker guys are going to take over the world. Yeah. Well, then you showed up. You wanted to know you were a dry sponge. And but, you know, but that learning process was two way street. I knew enough about tankers from having in my first Eagle assignment, we deployed up to Wendover, Utah, which is, you know where that is. <laughs> yeah. 
the closest the, the closest divert was Michael's Army Airfield. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a fun place. One of us, I got sent down to Nellis to coordinate fuel for us to get to the ranges at Red Flag for the for the exercise. So I was, my first week at Red Flag was spent down at Nellis mooching for gas, <laughs> and I got a real taste for the limitations of the booms priorities and. Uh, but you educated me a whole lot more, which actually paid off when I got to the staff because uh, I understood I couldn't do anything exercise-wise at pack camp without tankers. Nobody oh, could go anywhere. Because of the tyranny of distance. We had a Cope Thunder in the Philippines, uh, Cobra Gold in Thailand, yep. Ulti Focus Lens in Korea. Who was the one in Australia? Uh, Pitch Black. Pitch Black. I knew it was black. black. I can't remember the first word. Pitch Black. Black. Did you know that I used to go to the quarterly air refueling conferences at Scott when I was on the staff? I used to go. We were at a hotel outside of Scott. And as soon as I got to the hotel, I'd go to the main desk and I'd reserve a conference room for every day of the conference at lunchtime because I didn't have an airlift budget that was enough. But what I had a lot of was man days of per diem and the garden reserve guys knew it. And I would sit at that table and I would wheel and deal with mandates and per diem to get those guard reserve units to come to back half. The Air Force does like gets like 50 KC-10 missions a quarter. The entire Air Force. Pack half got half of them yeah. <laughs> every quarter. Yeah, and, and there was a reason. When, there was a good when reason when a KC-10 for that too. passes gas, you don't pay for the lift. Exactly. That was why everybody wanted KC-10s. So just really quickly explain to people what that quarterly air refueling conference was, why they were having it. It was it was all the services were there, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and you're all vying for a DOD asset. They may say US Air Force on the on the wings, but they don't belong to the Air Force. As if you as you remember, Hester found out when we did the reorg. What do you mean I can't gas can't gas for my own tankers? <laughs> They're right across the runway. Oh, you should have been there for the first wing stand-up when he asked the, the tanker schedule, well, what's your ute rate? <laughs> and your schedule's going, uh, sir, what's a ute rate? <laughs> well, what's your ASD? Uh well, I don't know what that is either. <laughs> yeah. But the, the conference is all these players. And it's, you know, as you've referred to before, the generals make all the rules and the captains do all the work. And it was captains and majors. Uh, a few O fives like me uh, would be there. We would wheel and deal for which exercises the tankers could get to, how guys were going to get to and from. The scheduled deployments and rotations units around the world would be through there. The Westpac, Pack aircraft movements would be thrown in there. And then it was like crumbs would go on the floor, you know, and we're like rats scurrying out of corners trying to get as many crumbs as we could. <laughs> so it was, uh, and it was like a week long. Low density, high demand assets yeah. that everybody wanted. Mm-hmm. Even international folks would sometimes show up to these air refueling conferences because yeah. they would do everything three months out. And, and then, of course, some big contingency would happen and screw it all up. Yes. As, as Doug Dawson found out in numerous ways. I found out when I was on the staff and everybody got frozen in place in Korea. That's that uh, spring. I remember Colonel Hester going, wait a minute, these guys are in my wing and I don't control them. (laughs) I was, I knew it was, I knew the, I knew the question and I knew he wasn't going to like the answer, but nothing I could do about it. (laughs) I, I remember you coming back and telling me that story, how pissed he was. They're part of my wing and I don't own them. I can't do anything with them. Who was the deputy dog? His uh, tanker guy, deputy dog. I, 
I can see his face. Oh, uh, Ian Chopper. I know oh. who you're talking about, but I can't remember his name either. I can picture his face I too. I don't think Esther listened to him. <laughs> that's, I, I, that's one of the lessons learned, I think, from bringing us all together as that big combined wing. Now, this is right after Desert Storm. Yes. And and Rags Raft is our squadron commander, okay? <laughs> yeah, what a character. But, you know, you and I were just discussing right place, right time. I think Rags was the right place, right time for the OSS to come together. Yeah. he um, And Dave Bearden, his deputy, who was our... Dave, our, yeah. Yeah, he was our vice commander at the 909th. Those guys coming together really helped put that group together but they did a good job of rags listened to dave dave listened to rags and rags really fought to protect his staff he did you know because as i said earlier i was the only fighter guy in that shop and i was getting phone calls directly from herd directly from hester and i'd be showing up at wing staff and rags would be looking at me what are you doing here i go well i got this briefing to give I remember one time I was, quote, on leave. I had just gotten back from a trip from a TDY, and I was supposed to be going to Singapore Sling, yeah. Commando Sling down in Singapore, like the day after Thanksgiving. I was supposed to be on vacation that week. And I come home, and, of course, there's a tasking for me that Colonel once briefed, like, at the Wednesday staff meeting. And I run into rags, going out of the building. I have the briefing in my hand because I'm on my way across the base. And he starts just going at me that he didn't in know typical rags that. fashion. Yeah, I, it, and I knew it wasn't personal with him because he was he confronted me a lot but i knew he'd also confronted hester and the general about going directly to me just knock it off and they wouldn't he starts scolding me and i go sorry rags but i can piss off you or i can piss off the 06 and you lost <laughs> and i i took my papers and because i was going to be late <laughs> and you know i never heard any more about it from him over that incident you know i knew i wouldn't because he was that's the way he was really frustrated with it and i know that well, we all were. Remember, they had us all out there on the ramp and we were all marching when when they did the change of command. Remember that? And, and all these different groups were moving around on the ramp as we became this combined wing yeah. in the middle of the summer in our uh, blues. And I remember Rags looking over his shoulder going, what have I just inherited? Again, like you said, we all looked at each other like dogs and cats are living together now. And we've got to find out how we do business. You know, and that's one of the things I love about Cliver. Jeffrey George Cliver is one of the best commanders I think you and I ever work for. Sea liver. Sea liver. Because Hurd, General Hurd leaves. He's an F-16 guy, so he doesn't like to be at an F-15 base anyway. All right. And he wasn't there for very long. It was only a couple of months, if I remember right, six or eight months. And then Sea liver shows up. This was at a commander's call where he said, I want all of you to learn how each other does business. Yep. I want you to recognize the voice on the other end of the radio. And he opened all the cockpits up. He says, I want the tanker guys flying with the F-15 guys, the F-15 guys flying with the AWACS guys, AWACS guys flying with the helicopter guys, so that when the time comes, you hear a voice on the radio, you know who it is. I remember and that. Within about eight, nine months. I remember flying, uh, God, what was that exercise they had up in Northern Edge? Oh. And it was a rotor Schroeder and the 12th was up there. I remember rotor coming outside the cockpit. He says, Sluggo, we're behind. All I had to hear was Sluggo, we're behind. And I remember talking to Jatosi ATC saying, Jatosi, I need a block altitude and I need this heading to go to their cap point. And I turned toward that and I heard rotor go, I love you, man, over the radio. <laughs> 
But that was because all of us knew each other's business, like you're talking about. We had actually sat down and learned, okay, what do you bring to the table? What do the F-15s bring to the table? As much as we hated that reorganization, you know, we joked about the compost wing there at Kadena. It was actually good for the Air Force for, you know, you look at what you and I did. I'll never forget when I read you into the limited black world that I had and you read me into your black world. I went, oh, crap, I got a postage stamp on this envelope. <laughs> Some of the briefings we got to do, the one we walked out of, well, that's the last time we briefed him. Yeah, that was interesting. And he commits suicide. Yeah. I just, uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but fortunately it was the best thing that ever happened to me because <laughs> uh, his, the PRF that he was going to sign was a do not promote. And uh, cause I saw it, I guess uh, chopper completely rewrote it and sea liver signed it. You know, sea liver was at Hama with me. He was an opso in one of the other squadrons and uh, I knew him there. And then I briefed him when Fogelman was the seventh air force commander. That was the briefing that you helped me build where we went from 24 to 18 and heard had me brief seventh air force, but didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And I breathed seventh before I breathed fifth. <laughs> Did that blow up when I finally breathed fifth air force? Yeah. You know, and it seemed like those two were never on the same page. Seventh no. and fifth no, it was, until Myers got there. That was different because Myers spent a lot of time down with us. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> he later became, you know, the chairman. I remember seeing him all the time. Matter of fact, you know what? I ran into him at the Joint Forces Staff College one day. My former ops group commander at Fairchild was his speechwriter. And she goes, I'd like to introduce you to, and he goes, hey, Sluggo, how you doing? (laughs) And I said, sir, I'm the only person in this building that has the pleasure of giving you gas. (laughs) The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he laughed like crazy. He laughed like that's great. And my army two stars like going, oh, I can't take him anywhere. (laughs) Back to being a combined wing. You were right, man. We we all looked at each other like this isn't going to work. And a matter of fact, Strategic Air Command didn't want it to work. And Jerry Beverly actually told the story I've heard is Colonel Beverly actually told an old sat guy, I'm going to make it work. And that was one of the reasons, uh, this is rumor, mind you. Yeah. That was one of the reasons uh, he didn't go any farther because he made it work. We made it work. You know, it's interesting, you know, because we took over, we had the, uh, the AWACS, which mm-hmm. went from being an ACC detachment to a PACAF asset to an yeah. 18th wing. You had the 12 tankers who were a strategic asset that, stayed that way, didn't belong the sack anymore. You had, the, we had the helicopters, which, and the C-12s and, you know, three squadrons of Eagles. Well, then the Sal moved in. <laughs> oh yeah. I forgot about that. The 33rd Sal special <laughs> operations wing moves in. And then we've got the Navy having- on the ramp. We got the Marines and their Harriers tearing up our runways and taxiways. Yep. And then the Hornets came in and the P3s were around all the time. And, uh, and well, let's throw the rivet joints in there too. I got to take the cables down. All of that was going on while you and I were there. Yeah. And every day, Jeff, it was, we had strategic operational and tactical missions on every schedule every day, 24, seven, 365. And we did it. We pulled it off. I remember, I remember being number one to take off and not anymore. Here comes the RJ. Priorities were priorities. For all my listeners, the RC-135 is a permanent fixture on the ramp at Kadena, flying reconnaissance missions throughout the Pacific. Some variant. 
Yeah. Do you remember when we had all three versions on the ramp? Yeah. That was the rivet joint, the combat scent, the Cobra ball, all flying operational missions, all of them requiring primary tanker and a man spare. Yep. So that was six tankers soaked up by just three airplanes. Mm -hmm. That's what it means when you don't have control of your tankers in your wing. And every time I I know we we had to tell sea liver that general Hobbins, when he showed up, same thing. Well, wait a minute. They're right here on the ramp. I own them. Uh, No, actually you don't. You know, my experience with you actually paid off on my final assignment too. When I was at Seymour, because I was the chief of the command post and the uh, reserve tanker unit lived in our command post as well. You know, with all the deployments going on still, this is back, you know, before 9-11, but there were still a lot of things going on. I understood why our guys were losing air refueling currency. Nobody really did. I don't know. I think Biggs did because he should have known better. But I don't think the regular guys could. When the tankers are right there, why can't we get gas? They're on the ramp with us. Now, they didn't belong to the wing but they, cause they were separate, but you know, I understood what the problem was. And Biggs did too. Cause I had this same conversation with him. I'm the ops group commander. What do you <laughs> mean? I don't own the tankers. Okay. Oh, that's right. I forgot. He, that's right. He was at Kadena. He was when the I OG, was yeah. That's right. After chopper. Okay. Yep. After our buddy committed suicide, he who shall remain nameless committed suicide. Chopper became the ops group commander. And then, <laughs> Biggs came over there because he had worked for Cliver and man was life wonderful. That must have been Sea Liver was a great guy to work with. I remember uh, when I went to get to brief him initially when he got there and brief him and all the code word stuff I had in my back pocket and I needed the letter signed, you know, and it was some of us a little bit was just catching up because I'd seen him at seventh, but I'd never gotten the chance to talk to him up there. And just catching up from the Holloman times, but, you know, just chatting with him about what I did and the freedoms that he gave me. I will never forget the one exercise where I walked into the security police commander and, and I gave him this scenario that he was going to play out in the middle of the night. And he goes, that's not going to work. I'm not doing that. And I just showed him Sea Liver's signature on the letter saying, hey, just read this. <laughs> this dumb major says you're going to do this. Yes, you are. <laughs> says The dumb major knows what he's doing. <laughs> As you mentioned, I had a number of uh, behind the closed door projects that I had to deal with. I remember going in and talking to he who shall remain nameless and how you and I both came out of that meeting and you and I were sitting in the car and I remember you turning to me and looking at me going, well, that was worthless. <laughs> yeah, remember that was. conversation? Remember that? Oh, and yeah. That was a, and that was a short drive too. Okay. And you will you know, do it I think my way. You will time. do it exactly as I tell you. I am the ops group commander. You will do it this way, and there won't be any ifs, ands, or buts. Do you understand me? Otherwise, I'll replace you. Oh, I only wish. Yeah. And he couldn't because I didn't work for him wearing that hat. <laughs> Neither I, did you. <laughs> I know that. That pissed him off. You know, it's interesting. What we saw leadership wise there at Kadena ran the entire gamut. Oh, and we could write a book on that, couldn't we? You weren't there for the first wing commander, Skip Hall. I was at the very end when he was the 18th yes. wing commander. Because when we did the when we did the reorg, he he would he took he left, and the OG the, the group commander became, and the air division commander became the wing commander. Oh yeah, it was. But yeah. Um, he was a great guy. I mean, interesting to work for. Um, this is when I still worked in the DO's uh, building, and I remember he would send me messages, handwritten notes. 
And I'd have to call Judy, the secretary. She was the only one who could decipher his handwriting. Why he wasn't a doctor is beyond me. Kanji was easier to read. (laughs) (laughs) I still see him. You missed the ORI that summer. You got there after the ORI. I did, right after it was done. An ORI that summer, and the PACF Stanaval team wrote us up because it's 98 degrees, 100% humidity, and we had trouble running around in MOP4. They downgraded us on the ORI for it. And he got, Skip Hall got up at the end of the debrief, basically told them all to go F themselves over there while they're out there in their, you know, lights, light blue short sleeve shirts, you know, with their clipboards, we're out there sticking, you know, sweating gallons a second. Yeah. The, the place went freaking nuts when he did it. <laughs> but that was the kind of leadership we had because yeah. sea liver was the same kind of guy, probably even more so because he yeah. fought a lot of battles for our combined wing. Cause a lot of people said, this isn't working. We're going to break you guys all up again. And then sack goes away and it's like, where are the tanker guys going to go? I think once we had Chopper, we had Biggs, we had Sea Liver. Uh, I can't remember the the wing vice, but he was a tanker guy too, and he was really good too. I can't remember. I can. No, the deputy, the tanker deputy dog. Man, I can see his face because he was still there when I was on the staff, and he would call me because he was coming to hick him for something. And I always had to get him a tea time, which was great because I could. He was a full colonel, automatic tea time, and I play golf with him every time he came. I remember the name now. For all of you out there, I don't mean to offend you, but Biggs, remember, called them the Nazi bros, Kugler and Ziggler. Oh, that's right. Ziggler. Dave Ziggler. And Kugler, <laughs> Kugler was the F-15 deputy, okay, for the three squadrons. Dave Ziggler, Colonel Dave Ziggler, yeah. was the deputy for the heavy side, for the Helos, the AWACS, and the tankers. He was another great dude. Another great dude. Matter of fact, I'm still in touch with him. But I remember once coming to the ops group because Biggs had said, I need to talk to you. And he says, I'm talking to the Nazi bros. And he that's what he called them, the Nazi bros, (laughs) Kugler and Ziggler. And he meant that with all the respect that you can imagine. All right. And and again, it was a different Air Force back then. But again, that was part of the leadership that we had not only at the wing, but at the ops group. And even at the squadron level, we had great commanders. Gino you know, Biggs was like, Biggs was my last wing commander. I didn't. And when I was that. the chief of the command post, I worked for him. I did not know that. I wish true, I could find him. I'd true story. We're in the yeah. middle. When I took over the command post, I had a, a tech sergeant who was on terminal leave. He was dying of cancer. He had, uh, I went down and to uh, Fort Bragg and medically retired him in his room. This is in the fall. And I told his wife, if you need anything from me, you call me. So the next May, in the middle of the ORI, she, I, yeah, they just killed me because they thought I was micromanaging. And I went, yeah, that's nice. This place isn't going to skip a beat. Anyway, they killed me and my phone rings when I'm back in the office and it's the wife. He wants to be medically evacuated back to Michigan where he grew up. And the Army says, no. I mean, you're a retired lieutenant colonel. How do you answer the phone? Colonel Felmuth. So Colonel Felmuth calls down to the Army hospital. I can almost hear this soldier standing at attention when I said the word colonel. Why get him medevac? They don't know I'm an 05. Now, you may not realize this, having been with the Army as a fact, the difference between 05 and 06 in the Air Force is pretty big. That is millimeters compared to this between an 05 and an 06 in the Army. She calls me and thanks me for getting him out of there. 
there's a low in the action in the ORI. And I sneak into the battle cab and Biggs is there. And I go up to his desk and I go, boss, I might be in trouble. What did you do? Because he's thinking ORI. Oh, I can see him doing that too. And, you know, and he's listening. And, he, and at the top, I told him what I did. And he, at the top of his lungs, he goes, you did what? And the battle staff comes to a complete stop. Inspectors, battle staff people, everybody's looking at the two of us. <laughs> he just goes, shit hot, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. <laughs> but see, that's leadership, Flounder. That's, that's what leadership is about. You take care of your people and their family. I remember we had a similar thing at Kadena where somebody was in a bad way. All right. And this was just after I left and it was a brand new baby, brand new baby, lots of problems. And they arranged to get that baby to Travis Air Force Base into the hospital. Okay. Save that baby's life. Come to find out it's Dave Ingerson from the 909th and it's his baby. Oh, wow. He shows up at the tanker airlift control center about four months later, he was supposed to go to Russia to be the air attache. And now he's at St. Louis at the TACC because his son has lots of issues that they're still having surgeries for. That's what leadership is about. And a lot of people do not take care of their people like that. Do not do that. And when you go that extra mile, like Rush did for our family and Jeffrey, yeah, that's that's leadership. Okay. Don't, get, don't go there, Mark. Oh, I don't I need that, that right now. I know that. I know <laughs> that. Here's my buddy right here. Again, we had great leadership during that time. And we learned a lot about leadership from people like General Cliver, Randy Bigham, Gino Redman, and, and even some of the great you know squadron commanders that they had over in the fighter. Okay. Jammer Jackson, another person I wish I could find. Yeah. Q Quelly. Q tip. Oh my goodness. Yeah all these people. And we were all there at the same time. Really unusual thing is all the stars were kind of aligned together yeah. all at the same time. Skeet, Skeet, was, Skeet was my first flight commander in Eagle when I was at Holloman. And he becomes a four-star general. Okay. Yeah. And he takes over the weapons and tactics shop, you know, when, um, when, I, when I was there. Yeah. Yeah. When you were there and we just had great leadership and we learned leadership because we had all these great leaders around us and uh, we had a few bad apples in there. You know, like I said, one of them committed suicide. Well, there was, and, and there were some other ones too, not just him, but there were some target arms in there who, they may have had the patch, but they didn't wear it well. I know exactly and, who you're talking about. And there was others who, true story, you know, I had three years of doing almost strictly nothing but BFM in a T-38. And I show up at Kadena and I had my first MR ride with Kmart. <laughs> to say that he wiped the area floor with me, wouldn't do it justice. Didn't understand. I mean, he rubbed my nose in the dirt like I've never had. I came home with my tail's not between my legs. It's not even attached to my body anymore. And my, one of the guys goes, what's wrong? And I told him, he goes, oh, that's Kmart. He does that to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know what? Rico and I talked about this on his episode about how highly trained these men and women are that come through the weapons school. There's a lot of things going on in the world right now with China and Ukraine and everything. And people ask me, because I'm a military guy, they say, how would we do? How would we do against some of these people? And I tell them flat out, I said, there is no air force in the world that would live through an engagement of four F-22s driven by weapons school graduates. Yeah, It won't happen. It'll never happen. I would say the same for Top Gun 
guys also, knowing a, a lot of those guys. You are so highly trained and highly skilled when you come out of that school that things like Kmart happen to you all the time. And here you had been doing BFM for three years. So I want to go back a little bit farther in your history because I know a lot about you. Yeah. <laughs> you flew OV-10s. Yeah, I did that. In Germany. Talk to us about flying OV-10s in Germany. It was interesting. With my good friend, Dave Mason. Yes. With, yeah, with Dave. Uh, he was actually in, my, in the, the 20th with me, the 20th Tactical Air Support Squadron at a little old Sembach Air Force Base which was an interesting place because we had everything from a one-star wing commander to a two-star numbered Air Force general on the base. We had the two OB-10 squadrons. We had the 20th and the 704th. And they'd only been there about maybe a year and a half, two years when I got there. Uh, 75% lieutenants and a few second assignment fighter guys, uh, mostly uh, pretty much equal between A7s, believe it or not, and F4s. And we had one VARC driver. We called him Omar the Tent Maker. That's another long story. But uh, we were not MR pilots. We were MQ pilots. There were 54 of us split evenly between the two squadrons for the 54 maneuver battalions in the 5th and 7th U.S. Army Corps. This is, this is 1980 when I get there. Do you remember what happened in December of 1980? Solidarity, uh, labor movement. Oh, Lekwalesa and all his boys. Yeah. We deployed to our forward operating locations. When the Army goes out on the field just for regular maneuvers, there are convoys of live munitions following them around. Uh, not this time. Everything's loaded. We're there on the inner German wow. border. My... I was in the 164 Armor Battalion, which later was the first unit to go into downtown Baghdad, which I was thrilled when I saw that. They had M60A1s, and I had an M113 Armored Personnel Carrier. 13 tons of aluminum had a 500-pound pallet stuffed in the back that fit on one side of the uh, uh, compartment. Uh, could not swim the thing because it was lopsided. <laughs> we had to have a bridge. Uh, or it would roll right over. So I would I spent about two weeks out of every month out in the field with the 164 Armor. When the balloon went up, I got in a helicopter, believe it or not. We had an ORI right after I got there. I seemed to show up right in time for ORIs. I uh, did that at Kadena, too. And um, the NATO TACAVAL team shows up to give us an ORI, just like they would an F-4 squadron. So they made the wing generate 48 fully loaded OB-10s. Well, after the 54 of us get in the helicopters and leave, there's like 17 pilots left on the entire base, which includes the one star wing commander. <laughs> so needless to say, we failed that ORI because we couldn't fly any sorties. We couldn't fill their frag. They did not understand us. Um, See, was, what an important lesson that is right there. Your yeah. own people that evaluate you don't understand the job that you're doing. When they came back later, they finally figured out, oh, they never figured out how to do an ORI on the ground fact. So we would just leave the base and we're out there playing Army for two weeks because they have, the Army calls them RTEPs and it's kind of like an ORI in the maneuver areas. You know, they're out there, breakfast would show up at dinner time, dinner would show up at breakfast, you know, the, the one or two hot meals you'd get every couple of days. I, my first deployment with the Army was for Reforger that September when I got there. I got there in June. My first lawn deployment. So three weeks out in the field with uh, the army, and at one point, my tech sergeant driver and I get in the jeep. I have one of those too, pulling a trailer, 
and we get in the Jeep and we look at each other and both say the same thing. One of us has to get out. <laughs> it's been like over a week and we have not seen a bathhouse. So we're out in some wooded area. We got canteen cups, those metal canteen cups on the engine block, heating up a poncho on the ground in front of the Jeep. And we're pouring water over each other, giving each other showers to get some of the stink off because we couldn't stand each other anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand that though. You know, you know, the army, those guys, my hat's off to those guys. Adapt and overcome. So talk to us a little bit about what the OV 10 is and Uh, the mission with the rate, with the radio bank that it has in it. Pretty much like the A-10 has, but more. Uh, We had a UHF, we had two VHF AMs, two VHF FMs, crypto, I said the HF, the UHF, and an HF. Uh, I distinctly remember talking to the the Varks taken off out of Lake and Heath when I'm out on the check border uh, because I'm controlling them on a live fire, (laughs) talking to them on the radio. I did not know that. Yeah. You would have... In, in some of the cast exercises we have, I've had the, I'd have the A-10s on one of the Fox mics. I'd have the Army guy on the ground or the other ground fact on, an, on a Fox mic on the ground. I'd have some fighter on a VHF. Uh, I'd have another fighter on the UHF, uh, the ASOC on the HF. <laughs> and, and that was pretty typical. That was pretty yeah. typical radio uh, mastery. Yeah, you, I got very good at uh, deciphering which radio was going. The Fox mics have a squelch break when they when they stop talking. So they were easy to identify. One would be louder than the other. The, the VHF AMs were a little bit staticky. Uh, the UHF, as you know, is crystal clear. So that was always easy yeah. to find. And the HF was the gobbling turkey in your ear most of the time because there was always so much static on that. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's never been a problem for me to figure out which radio to talk on. It, but you were busy. The OB-10 canopy actually bowed out. It started down just below your hips and went up all the way around you like a a big bubble canopy. uh, And you had a grease pencil and you're talking to the ground fact or the fort or the uh, fire support officer on the ground getting, you know, UTMs or grid coordinates, you know, converting them to lat longs. And you're doing this all on 150 maps or one that we actually got one to 100 maps from the Brits, which were great because they covered more area and uh, were one to two fifties. And you'd be, converting all these things to pick, to give your nine line briefs out nine lines, just that the guys in the A 10 guys were talking about uh, the other day. And amazing um, how long that's been around, huh? You got really good at flying with your feet because we would set up an orbit at 500 feet at some contact point. And you'd put the airplane at 30 degrees of bank and trim it for level flight. And you got your map spread out in front of the cockpit now, and you're doing figure eights with your feet. Oh, I'm a little low top rudder. I need to turn around, rudder over the top, come back around a little high bottom rudder. And you'd fly around like that for like an hour at a time. <laughs> Crazy. That was, uh, and learning how to fly with my feet like that really paid off in the F-15. How so? The, automated, the F-15 automated flight control system was very smart. It knew that if you were high angle attack and you throw the ailerons in, it goes, you idiot. I'm not going to give you any ailerons at this angle of attack. I'm going to use differential slab and rudder <laughs> to get you to roll. Uh, or if you're negative G, your flight controls reverse. He goes, but it knew that. So if you put left aileron in a negative G, it still rolled to the left. But if I you were high angle of attack and you just 
quickly on, you know, you had the nose way jacked up. You could almost make the nose. Well, let me put it this way. The yaw tone came on at 41 degrees per second. Yaw rate of the nose going through the sideways. At 42 degrees, I believe, is when it departed, when the airplane would spin. Uh, the first time I did this, I had the yaw tone come on. It scared the living bejeebies out of me. <laughs> I had nose jacked up, and I go, I need to turn this airplane around. So I just unloaded, stomped on the rudder, and the basic airplane just basically swaps ends. It just spins on itself. I had guys I, ask me, how did you do that? I go, I used my feet, because a lot of guys just put their feet on the floor. So the mission of the OV-10, obviously, was Strictly forward air control. And call in violence. Yeah, we were, I had to be able to identify a truck, whether it was Polish, East German, West German, Dutch, Belgian, American. The easiest thing was I knew if it was an enemy vehicle, if it had a lot of antennas on it, that was the one I was going to kill first. And my favorite fighter over there was the A-10 because, true story, I was controlling a live fire demonstration for the Army Brass out at uh, Hohenfels. I've got everything from live artillery to F4s with live Mark 82s to Cobras firing rockets to a two-ship of hogs. I knew when the hogs were coming. I was talking to them on the radio. I knew when they were coming. The first thing I heard was the gun going off. (laughs) 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 And as I tell my friends, if you hear the gun, if you hear the gun go off, that's a good sign because it means you lived. Yeah. (laughs) Because the bullets are supersonic. <laughs> and look at that. Even nowadays, that's still an amazing airplane. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I mean, how many you times have you that. seen those videos of a field just disintegrated in 30 millimeter and yeah. it's quiet? And then you hear yeah. <laughs> I read an article, Jeff, about the Boise guys, the, the skull bangers coming back from, um, I think it was Afghanistan. They had one of their hogs that shot 309,000 rounds of 30 millimeter in a six month deployment. What how many barrels that was? I don't know, but the bottom of the airplane was black. I mean, just how many barrels they went I through. Know. I barrels. have no idea. I have no idea, but there's a famous picture of one leaving the tanker and he rolls like this. He or she rolls over. Yeah. And literally the whole bottom of the airplane is like dark gray and black because mm-hmm. of how many rounds these guys have shot out of that gun. That gun is legendary, as you well know. So you leave the TAS world and, and you went to Holloman for a couple of years to be a lead-in fighter instructor? No. Uh, out of that's the fact, when you went to Holloman? That's when I went to Holloman and my F-15 assignment, my, the A model. Funny story, my ops officer, who was a B-58 guy, a hustler pilot, Han Pfeiffer, great ops officer. 58 and, uh, to Eagles? No, no, no. This was my ops officer in the OB-10. Oh, I was okay. up in the OB-10 as a B-58 guy is beyond me, but he did. Anyway, he calls me into his office and he goes, Jeff, how big are your hands? And I'm thinking, oh, crap. I go, boss, they're not big enough for eight throttles. Because I'm thinking B-52 when he said that. He goes, yeah. hold them up. And I hold them up and he goes, yeah, I, I think they can handle an F-15 throttle quadrant. And I about wet my pants. Oh, um, it was my first choice. My second choice was a HOG, uh, and second, a third was the F-16, because I didn't want to, I wanted to do all air-to-air or all air-to-ground. I didn't want to do both. And uh, so I show up at Holloman. I was in the, the Bunyaps, the 7th Tactical Fighter Squadron, was what they were called at the time, who later became a stink bug squadron. And I don't yeah, think they're around anymore. No, they're not. 
they were deactivated, uh, I think, when they, uh, yeah, at Holloman when they left the F 117s. From there, I spent three years there at Holloman, got to do a constant peg when I was there, uh, my very first time up at Red Flag. So that talk was about that just real quick. Talk about what constant peg is and, and why that is such an incredible. So uh, they take a bunch of us down to this walled out at Nellis. It's got like a 16 foot razor wire wall, well, a 16 foot brick stone wall with razor wire on top. We go into the, and inside the yard is all this frontline Soviet equipment, ground equipment, tanks, uh, older service air missiles, AAA guns. They had a ZSU-23-4 in there. And then we go into this theater we, where we all have to sign non-disclosure agreements. Then we go in the hangar and we're all like, you have got to be kidding me. We're looking at frontline Soviet fighters, MiG-21s, MiG-23s, MiG-27s, Su-7s, Su-17s, Su-22s. It's there. And they tell us that you're either going to, you're going to get two sorties, one against the MiG-21, which they call the F-5, and one against the MiG-23, which they call the F-4. So the next day I go out to this airspace in the Western Ranges and a MiG-21 pulls up on my wing and we do a quick comparison, you know, how fast can he go? You know, we light burners at the same time, that kind of stuff, do a couple of quick demo things. And then we do a BFM setup where he proceeds to kick my butt because I can't get over the fact that I'm looking at a freaking Soviet MiG-21 in the air next to me. Um, <laughs> he embarrassed the snot out of me. A couple of days later, I get to go up against the MiG-23. And this was the, the one thing I remember about this engagement was that uh, we're side by side at 250 knots and we go burners now. The wick coming out of the back of that airplane is longer than the airplane. And he walks away from me. He just leaves. Yeah. To about 350 knots. And then I catch him and I leave him in the dust. It was think about quite that impressive. instant acceleration. Yeah. I, I mean, his initial acceleration was a lot, but he, he, he loses it. The thing couldn't turn to save itself. The other thing that shocked me, I'm looking over at this guy on my wing and I, all I can see is the guy's head. The canopy rail is like at his, above his shoulder. I go, how does he see out of that thing? Oh my goodness. I think, I think a periscope has a bigger view. <laughs> you know, there's uh, two good books out now about that. The one's called the MiG squatter by, I think it's by the guy who actually started it. His name escapes me real, uh, right now, but uh, I've talked to other guys that went through the constant peg program and how that really changed the way they did things, particularly in the Eagle, you know, cause all of them went out, you know, I'm in an Eagle, big radar, big missiles, yada, 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 yada. Yeah. And then they get humiliated <laughs> by some of these guys because these guys that are in this group are some of the best pilots. Oh, yeah. I know some of the guys who went there, like uh, Hawk, Herb Carlisle. Hawk Carlisle. Did yeah. you know uh, Rob Zettel, Z-Man? He was another F-15 guy, too. That He, he flew there, too. I'm, I've got to have them both on some point in yeah. time and talk because this was, this was an amazing training program and played huge dividends when we went to the first Gulf War, because what did Saddam have? Fulcrum, yeah. floggers, fish beds. I don't know if you've seen the pictures. Somebody was driving through the underneath the ranges not too long ago and found an F-16 fighting, fighting with a flanker and took a bunch of photos of it flying around. And he's got one literally where the flanker's here and the, and the F-16 here in the same frame. And he's going, well, I guess the constant peg program's back. It's an uh, amazing uh, training uh, program. Yeah. And these guys are really really good at it was flying interesting these airplanes. Because at the time, the MiG-23 and the um, Apex, it was the AA-7, in our classified materials, it was the Eagle Killer. 
according to the Intel estimates. Mm-hmm. It had a, the radar was better. The missile was better. The airplane could outperform us. You know, after doing that PEG mission, you know it can. After, you know, fighting against the MiG-21, especially as a brand new, you know, young captain, I only been in the airplane maybe four or five months at this point. I became a real, well, when I was at Holloman in, in the Smurf jet, in the T-38, I used to teach my students, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. And I go, that's not like cheating on a test. That is, you have an advantage over your adversary, or he has an advantage over you. You need to know what that advantage is or disadvantage it is and exploit it as much as you possibly can. And that meant you lived in the vault in 3-1, you know, in your Intel summaries and the EM diagrams of, you know, where do I outperform this guy? Where do I own this guy? Like, you know, as long as I didn't get slow with the MiG-21, he wasn't going to have any fun. Uh, But if I got slow with him, he was going to have me for lunch. I kind of drove that home to my students that you need to know your adversary and what you need to know your own airplane as well. So you can take advantage of those advantages you have. Uh, and that's what I call cheating. That's what Sun Tzu calls knowing your enemy and knowing yourself. And, and thou uh, shalt not fear the results of a thousand battles. I think it's the rest of the quote. You stayed there at Holloman flying Smurf jets. Yeah. So I went across the street to fly the Smurf jet, which initially was difficult. It's one thing to know when to do a high yo-yo or a low yo-yo or how to maneuver in a dogfight. Telling somebody else how to do it is a totally different thing. I, I discovered very quickly that the only way you could show a young, a young, a young guy how to do them was to exaggerate the snot out of them. And, <laughs> uh, you know, all your bandits were grapes. They were just, you know, they were benign turns. They'd go into a 5G turn and they're not going to reverse on you because you're going to screw this up because nobody's going to do this big high yo-yo. You're going to do a lot of little ones, but you would accentuate them to give them the idea of what to look for. What's this closure rate? What's this sight picture? Just like when you went to flight school. I mean, what did you do the first, all your tweet pattern, all your tweet rides at the beginning? You went out to a little bit of area work, then you came in and you beat the snot out of the pattern because until you figured out where that aim point was at the end of the runway, well, you were going yeah. to plant that little 5,000 pound dog whistle. You weren't going to learn how to land it. And once you found that sight picture, it didn't matter if you were in your KC-135 or in that tweet again, you could land it. Getting that sight picture that's going to transfer to your follow-on fighter um, that we had to get into them. And uh, we would actually uh, take the A-10 and 111 guys out to Luke into the TAC ACES sims. Uh, the TAC ACES sims are two dome simulators. It's almost complete bubble around you. You can almost see underneath you. You can look behind you, look above you, around you. Everything moves. The sim itself doesn't move, just the visual does. Your G-suit inflates, it G-locks you at high G, but you can fight the guy in the other sim. So we put the A-10 guy and the F-111 guy in there, not so much to teach them how to do BFM, but we make them like it was a student sortie, then they had to come out and debrief it and draw it. So you taught these guys how to recognize what they had done, taking notes on a knee board. The first time I got in that sim, I got, I knew the guy, he had been in my Smurf jet squadron and moved out there. And I go, Pepper, how many guys puke in that thing? Because, you know, your eyes are telling you, you just did a loop. Your, your body's going, you didn't move. And he goes, yeah, Jeff, they came out green. Nobody's puked there. They came out green. Yeah, about the color you are right now. <laughs> 
by the end of the two weeks we were up there, me and another Eagle guy would get in there and one of us would be in an Eagle. One of us would be in a, even then it was a flanker. Oh my goodness. We'd be in there for like an hour to pop. It's like the ultimate man cave. Oh, it was, if I could have one of those in my house and for as a video game, I'd never, I'd never get out. (laughs) People don't understand what this is like. It is the ultimate DCS computer flying thrill of a lifetime. I don't know if you know this. I got to fly the F-14 sim like that. The F-14D with the big engines. Ooh. Yeah. Big motors. Big motors. We had two external tanks, two Phoenix in the forward pallets, uh, one Sparrow, the lantern pod, two AIM-9 mics. And Rob Osterhout, Wimbo, was in the back seat. Uh, you're at the end of the runway, Sluggo, bring the airplane out of burner. Look at how fast you're going. And I was doing 550. Yeah, in the Ds, yeah. In the D, okay. I mean, it was just amazing. Smurf jets, T-38s, right? Painted up as in all these Smurf kind of blue colors. Yeah. And walk people through that syllabus, the, the lead-in um, fighter training syllabus that you taught. Were you all air-to-air? Since that's uh, where that was your experience, or did you do any? any I did air to ground, ground too. I did, did air to ground. So this is how I explain it to people who aren't pilots. Imagine you've just gone through driver's ed, and you had um, half your driver's training was in like a Passat, you know, a little four engine, four cylinder Passat, and then you do the second half of your driver's ed in a uh, Camaro. But you can get from your house to the next city, a hundred miles away, doing the speed limit. If you get a flat tire, you know how to change it. You know, if you get, you know, oil light comes on, you know what to do. You, you know how to pull over. You know how to follow directions, how to follow the road signs. We take you out in that same Camaro, except we take you out on the racetrack. And now we're teaching you how to do 200 miles an hour and donuts. <laughs> yeah. So you're flying a T-38, which is what guys at those days were coming out of pilot training, having flown. Uh, they have their wings. They have their follow-on assignment. We put a, uh, a manual bomb site. Uh, in the front of the airplane, we put a small pylon on the bottom of the airplane. It carries uh, a Su-20, which will carry uh, six, six, yeah, six BDU, what are BDU, oh, BDU-33s, I had to think of what they were, little 25-pound yep. practice bombs. Yep. Or believe it or not, we had a gun pod, a 7.62 minigun. When you fired it, it sounded like you were making popcorn. <laughs> the regular foul line, I think, for the fighters is 500 feet. Uh, for us, it was 250, <laughs> or the bullets wouldn't be supersonic when they hit yeah. the scoreboard. <laughs> but and you're teaching would, basic fighter fundamentals teaching, to these we guys. We taught right them off. how to do all the yeah. basics. Yeah. So we teach them the basics of 1v1. Uh, for the F-15 guys, they got to do a little bit of 2v1. The F-16 guys got to do a little bit of air-to-air, 1v1. And then they got to do a lot of air-to-ground. We did low levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the A-10 guys... They got only a couple air-to-air rides. They did mostly air-to-ground. Uh, the Varks were the same way, guys going to the Vark. Yeah, um, makes sense. We had uh, the Wizzos coming out of Mather. Guys were going to the back seat of the Vark or the uh, the side seat of the Vark or the back seat of the uh, F4. They would sit in the back seat with uh, most of the time they had an instructor in the front seat. And we would take them out and we would take them out on air-to-air rides and air-to-ground rides and make them do their back seat job from – teaching them how to look for the bandit when you're defensive, how to help you on a low level route with, you know, they had to get, they had to find their way around a low level route. They're telling you when to turn, helping you, you know, with your scoring on the range, as far as, you know, your parameters on each pass and everything. And so we put them to work. 
then, you know, in the night we teach them how to shoot their watch and play crud and, you know, play dice and all the other <laughs> things. It was, it was a rewarding experience. It was funny. I was, oh, I was in my early thirties. My wife got a kick out of the fact that I used to talk about, it. yeah, this, this kid today, she, she goes, they're not kids. I go, to me, they are. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, and look at them now. Oh, no kidding. So I did that for three years. It was great because it was, you know, you flew, a lot of times you flew twice a day. Even when I was the chief of scheduling in my squadron, I flew at least once a day. Uh, you just didn't have the manpower not to fly everybody at least twice, at least once. And about half the squadron flew twice every day because of the syllabus. You were just, it was nonstop. So it was busy, but it was no night, no chem gear. <laughs> yeah. And the great thing is, is you're, you know, you're teaching guys fundamentals, but you're sharpening your own skills too. Cause I'm sure you guys, the instructors have training sorties, you know, that they go up on and fight each other, you know, to stay sharp and stuff. So when you came to Kadena, you know, like you said, you had flown a lot of air to air and that experience translates over into the Eagle at Kadena yeah. big time. It's, it's interesting because when I got my assignment to Kadena, I didn't get an end assignment. Uh, I got a training rip telling me I was going to Luke at a certain time. And the DO at the time was very big on, you did not get your assignment from the personnel people. You got it from him. Somehow I got mine without him knowing it. And I'm sitting on this training rip, not telling anybody I have it, waiting for the DO to call me. And I finally can't stand it. I let about a week and a half go by and I go to his office and I, and I, I go, and I'm very apologetic of boss. I have an assignment. He goes, and he's not happy. Oh, I he, bet. This, this was one, of, I can't remember his name, but he was a great DO. He was the, the extreme opposite of the wing commander, which is amazing. The wing commander was the other extreme. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He was a little upset. In fact, he picked up the phone. He called the personnel people and he scolded somebody. But he and I called Randolph together to find out where I was going. And so I'm on the phone and I go, hey, I got this rip, but uh, it doesn't say what my end assignment is. I go, I guess I'm going to Kavlovic. And the guy goes, you want to go to, he goes, he goes, no, you're going to Kadena. He goes, do you want to go to Kavlovic? I go, no, 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 no. I mean, I was so sure I was going to Kaf that my wife and I are both from Jersey. So we were going to move back to the East Coast and that way I would be, she would not be far from McGuire. So I could come home on a rotator every once in a while for a few days uh, during the year I would be over there. And then I get Kadena. So I took them with me and, yeah. uh, and that's where I met you. Yeah. The rest that's is history. And, uh, and I, show then, up, I show up at Kadena on the day Saddam invades Kuwait. Val says was... to me, you're not gonna have to go to this. Are you? And I go, no, no, no. We got plenty to do here. Great timing. Yeah. And then uh, Jerry Beverly got up in front of everybody and says, who's been to Saudi Arabia in the last year and a half? Raised my hand. <laughs> yeah, I was on the second airplane out 30 seconds behind the first one <laughs> Chuck, with Chuck Rule, Chuck Rule and his crew and his crew. I remember that name. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck was uh, he had uh, he was one of the Stan of crews. He actually yeah. ends up flying the very first sortie, the very first combat sortie out of Jeddah. He went up and refueled one of the AWACS. He took off like about a minute before I did. And uh, so he had the uh, distinction of his crew being the very first Jetta combat sortie. And then I took off, I took off uh, like, like I said, a minute behind him with three tankers 
and we were fueled the first weasel packets going into Baghdad. It's pretty, pretty it went incredible. Too far. And you went too far. <laughs> I did go too far, but that's because <laughs> they one of his guys needed is, to. Yeah, he needed us to, you know. Yeah. And if one of the great lessons learned from flying tankers is your job is to make sure that they're full of gas. These guys had air-to-air -air missiles. They could protect us and everything. And he was having a hard time getting gas because of uh, the pressurization of the tanks going, uh, filling up the tanks and everything. And yeah, got to the NDR point. And I said, okay, it's not full of gas. We're going to keep going. And that's the decision you make. That's your job. One of the things that it really impressed me when I got to Kadena was how the, the tactics there were beyond anything I'd seen. Even at Red Flag, just on a daily basis, the squatter was doing, you know, four ship walls. That's just how they employed. You know, the stuff that we did routinely was stuff we only did on special occasions in the States. The, yeah. the lack of having our hands tied for so many things, maybe because we were, you know, the real tip of the spear instead of back in the States made a difference. I don't know. I don't know what it was like in Yusefi flying the fighters, except for the little bit I got to go over there on my first assignment, we went over to uh, Europe. Kadena was, uh, I learned more in those three years oh. than probably in the first year than I had in three years before in the Eagle. Easily. And, that was my best educational assignment. That was by far the most educational assignment I had in my entire Air Force career. And you talked about doing things in the airplane that we didn't do anywhere else. Remember, KC-135s were doing ASLAR approaches there. And oh, I, re oh, I forgot. <laughs> remember that? Okay. Oh. And remember, too, we tested that. We tested that for the Air Force where we had F-15 tanker, F-15 tanker, F-15 tanker, just to see what would happen because everybody wanted to know. God, I can't remember the name of the 44th guy that was running the test. Uh, bald, bald guy, skinny bald guy. But that was one of our mission qual things that we had to do in the tanker was ASLAR approaches. And I'm like going, I haven't even, I don't even know what that is. How do you spell that? <laughs> How do you spell that? Okay. <laughs> Aircraft surge, launch and recovery. And I remember the first time I did it down at Clark at 300 knots in a tanker. Well, that like was the standard recovery at Clark. I know that. And we came down from the fix, did the arc to the final, did the slowdown and everything. We had actually an ASLAR checklist for the tanker because things were out of order. Because, you know, you bring the speed brakes up to slow down to, yeah. you know, to do the drag and to slow down to, you know, your approach speed and all that stuff. We're hauling butt at 300 knots. In the <laughs> you are. Okay. That's 15 knots slower than the refueling speed we use to refuel you guys. Mm -hmm. So we're hauling butt. Sure enough, the first time I did it, we were doing it single ship. And I screwed it up. I've never done an approach that fast with so many things that you had to do to slow the airplane down. Yeah. But it's, we obviously got better, you know, as we did this thing. And and it actually became a lot of fun, particularly when you did it in cell with, with another tanker in front of you. It was, I remember, right, it was a training requirement. You had to do so many a quarter. Yeah, we did. We had to do, I think it was three ASLAR approaches a quarter. And so when we did our pattern work, we would come down from the fix and do one real quick. You couldn't put the gear down until you're below 280 knots. So you're going yeah. 300 knots. You're 20 knots above your gear speed. So you had to go speed brakes, slow down to 280, put the gear down. In our book, you couldn't have the speed brakes and the flaps, the flaps down on the speed brakes up at the same time. Yep. So you had to put the speed brakes down as you started putting the flaps down at 230, 220, 210, 200. 
I remember we had some guys from the States that come over and, and wanted to fly with us. And we did one of those things and, and their, their <laughs> minds just were blown. They're like, <laughs> it's a typical thing. This is dangerous. You shouldn't be doing this and everything. And I'm like, you don't live here. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to have to put tankers on the runway fast and F-15s on the runway. Fortunately, we had the two runways, but guess what, Jeff? Those are exactly the procedures we use to get everybody down in Jeddah. Yeah. We had fighter guys that were in the guard units goes, oh, this is easy. We'll just do a VFR Aslar approach. And all the yeah. Kadena guys went, perfect. All the guys from the States are like going, you're going to kill us. Yep. And it worked out. But that was one of the things, like you said, one of the tactics that we that we regularly did at Kadena that we didn't do anywhere else. Aslar approaches. Aircraft surge, launch and recovery approaches at 300 knots in a tanker and a big airplane. And like I said, we did that test where we had F-15 in front, F-15 behind, and we had F-15 in the middle with tanker in front, tanker behind, and wrote the report. Everything was, this works. It works really good, as a matter of fact, particularly with two runways and you have the tanker go to the outside runway and you have the F-15s go to the inside runway. No problem. You bring something up there that, you know, the stateside guys, I'm going to go back to the Smurf jet for real quick. I was the assistant ops officer in the academic squadron. Lead in is dying. Specialized UPT is getting ready to start up. And we have this, uh, the syllabus squadron commander from Randolph, who is a fighter background guy, but he's been in the air, et cetera, way too long. He's got an F-16 guy with him, who's one of his instructors. And they came to talk to us to how they're going to bring this into UPT. So I'm there with the brand new squadron commander, a guy named Wildman Lukens, who had left the Bunyaps when I walked in the door. I knew him by, I had met him. He'd been there just a couple of weeks. And I, and now I'm his buddy IP, by the way, too, getting him checked out in the Smurf jet. And me and Toby Hughes, who is our civilian uh, chief of academics, F4 front seater from Nam. So the three of us, and there's three of them, they were asking us questions. It was hysterical because they go, so what's your minimum airspeed with a student? No, they go, what's your minimum airspeed? And I go, minimum airspeed is we don't have one as instructors. With a student, we try to keep it above 100 knots. And they're just having seizures. <laughs> well, I, I, and the guy goes, how many times do you depart one? And Wildman looks at me because he's only been on the base for like a couple of weeks as the squadron commander. He goes, well, Jeff, you've been here a long time. How many times have we lost the 38 out of control? I go, the only one I know of, it was the FCF when the boat tail came off. The back end oh. of the airplane came off. Yeah. they just couldn't believe it the tail and the stab all connected in the same piece but the classic one was we asked them how they were going to teach bfm you know and they said we're gonna we're gonna have the fapes do it and i thought toby was gonna fall on the floor laughing the civilian the academic instructor i mean wild man and i are just laughing at these guys you're gonna what (laughs) the blind leading the blind Never heard any more about that meeting after that, but it was interesting to say the least. Lasted most of the afternoon. Well, you leave Kadena and go to the PACAF staff and you get embroiled in a very interesting battle about strike eagles and close air support. Oh, man. And Spliff Russell talked about this too. So why don't you give our listeners operational look at how that went over at the operational level, at the Uh, headquarters level? It was it was after the the blow up in Korea in 93 or 94. Was that 93 or 94? Yeah, when the father died or the grandfather yeah. now. Yeah, Kim Il-sung uh, dies in June of 94. 
Interestingly enough, I had just taken over as the four letter. I had just been a guy in the shop and I now in charge. And I have the Eilson A10s, the Elmendorf E's, and I think I had Misawa in Korea for yeah. this exercise. And everybody is frozen in place. And I yeah, get a phone it, it call. It became saying, a mini air campaign because remember, we brought over F 117s. We had it all because uh, we thought they were coming south. All I knew was that I got a phone call said, I'm still paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> Out of that, don't remember how I got tasked with this or where, even where it came, but I got involved in writing some message or some paper that went up the chain of command from uh, an F 16 three letter. And then there was uh, McBroom was the two-star, Santorelli was the vice, and I'm trying to remember the stinking uh, packet commander's name. Anyway. Was um, it Rutherford? It wasn't Rutherford. Yeah, it was. It was Rutherford. The, uh, <laughs> Mr. Smiles. Yeah, I never got the real, I never got to brief him one-on-one. I did a lot of stuff with Santorelli in there because of what happened with RSO and I and what was going on in Korea. And my background, having done air-to-air and air-to-ground and been a Ford air controller, I understood that the Strike Eagle should be able to do this. I can't remember if the weapons guys got with me or this or not, but somewhere I got involved in putting CAS and F-15s together. And uh, it went up the chain of command and came roaring back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I got my head handed to me on a a very rusty platter. (laughs) Oh, man. You can't, because it was, at the time, it was a doctrinal issue. I mean, yeah. Strike Eagles did seed. That's all they did. They yeah. did offensive or defensive strikes. That's all they did. They did not do any of this cast. And to see it, you know, and then to see them, what they were doing in Afghanistan, especially, not so much in Iraq, but in Afghanistan, was like, yeah, knew that, knew that shoe was going to fall one of these days. Yeah. Anaconda was probably part of the reason it did. Yeah. You know, loading them up with nine GBU 12s and sending them down to support troops in contact, a Navy SEAL team troops in contact. And you talk about danger close. Well, with a GBU, you can be a lot better danger close than you can with a Mark 82. And here you are dropping bombs from this thing. And again, like Spliff Russell said, it wasn't even in our doctrine. Nobody trained to it. And here we are doing it for the first time with guys 80 meters away from the bad guys. And so I, you're in these meetings, imagine. you're in these meetings with all of these different leaders and they're all like going, not only no, <laughs> but yeah, but hell no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, yeah. I, Cause it was in a meeting. I forget if I was, was it the PACAF staff meeting? Two star was leading that meeting. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. Not pretty. And then you end up flying the airplane. Yeah, which was actually eagle. quite a surprise. I never expected to go to a mud hen. It was, uh, I wasn't. How did, that, how did that assignment work out? Because you went from the PACAF staff to Seymour, didn't you? Another yeah, assignment well, rip shows up in the mail. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I, don't, I honestly don't remember how I got this assignment. Uh, I was pretty busy that last year. I knew I was leaving, but I didn't know where. My exercise budget from the PACAF side and the joint side. So my blue money and my purple money had been literally, and my airlift money for the following fiscal year had literally been cut in half. So I'm working with the three-star, building a briefing to give to the four-star so he can go downrange into Asia 
to tell which countries we weren't coming to play because we couldn't afford it. Because I didn't have the horsepower to, to cut exercises. He had to do that. And see, people don't realize that this back and forth and these kind of deals go on all the time. Yes. When it comes to exercises. And you have to prioritize, okay, which country do I want to spend my dollars with? And which country am I basically going to piss off? Well, at the same time, the two-star was trying to have me add exercises to a budget that I couldn't fill. So it, yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, anyway, so I, I get the rip. I, I have a training date in end of September, October. Uh, I moved the family to North Carolina just in time for Hurricane Fran to devastate North Carolina. Oh, no. They've been in the house for like two weeks. And I'm in Honolulu watching this all in the national news. Oh, yeah. I can't get a hold of them. Now, you'll understand this. My second daughter was born in 1990 in Okinawa. I brought her home from the hospital that night a typhoon hit the island. Yep. Every weekend for the next five weeks, a typhoon hit the island over the weekend. I remember that. We refer to her as Typhoon Katie. (laughs) I remember that. I remember Uh, you calling her that too, Typhoon Katie. So, but now my family is in an American built house, which is not still reinforced concrete. (laughs) Not even close. (laughs) And I can't get all of them. It was interesting, but they were okay. I get there. I'm on casual status and they really don't have anything to do because they have, uh, Seymour Johnson was affectionately called Silver Leaf Acres. Uh, There were 50, there were 16 rated 05 billets. There were 54 rated 05s on the base when I got there. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I had been on the PACAF squadron commander's list, but nobody in ACC knew me and nobody cared. So I get there and I just go down to the academic squadron. I get my, uh, what little bit of pubs I can. Uh, The Air Force had started computer-based training at this point which was rudimentary to say the least. Well, had you been in the backseat? You remember that upfront controller? That oh, was yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I had never seen that thing before. It's That's massive. The Strike Eagle looks like an, a, dark, a dark green air-to-air version. Yeah. Except for the CFTs. But I had flown CFTs at Kadena. Yep. Uh, yeah. Hated the MISIP jets. Yeah, the MISIP jets. But we had the original CFTs at Kadena, and they were horrible. It took, I remember everybody complaining about those. Well, a good maintenance crew could drop a CFT in about an hour and a half. Huh. A brand new crew could drop a Strike Eagle CFT in at most 30 minutes. Yeah. A train crew could replace one in about 15. Yeah, they were like Legos. They snapped on, snapped off. Yep. So I spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what this stuff was. And when I can't touch it and play with it, but just see it, and they're talking about all these underlying subroutines and sub I got so stinking lost in pages. Yeah. Page under a page under a page. Yeah. So I start class and there's eight crews, eight pilots, eight backseaters. I am paired with this young man who's uh, a weasel guy named Darren Calaruso, who I'm still friends with. Great guy. So we go through the program, uh, get checked out. Fortunately, I had done some air to ground in the T-38 and in the OV-10, so it wasn't that big of a learning curve. I wasn't the best bomber in the squadron, but I wasn't the worst. 
But I remember uh, one of my first defensive air-to-air rides, Chewy Baki is one Bravo. <laughs> the guy who took out the helicopter with the LGB. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. And I forget who the major was, who was my instructor, but I'll never forget. He says, sir, we're not going to try. I'm a lieutenant colonel. And he goes, sir, we're not going to try to teach you air to air. And I went, stop. This is not a light gray. The E model at the time had an angle of attack restriction of 25 units. And all the light gray guys listening to this just went, well, how do you fly the airplane at 20, below 25 units angle of attack? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know, especially defensively. It was a flight control software issue. And we had all these, ex- we had the, the lantern pod and the targeting pod and the CFTs and the racks, which, yes, it was still a 9G airplane, but not sustaining 9Gs. It's a heavy airplane. Yeah. So, Particularly when you start loading stuff on it. And uh, so they thought I was being cocky. So when I had to demonstrate proficiency in defensive BFM, I found this out about a year later. Uh, normally when you're, your bandit is limited to minimum burner. Even in the light gray, when you go out to demonstrate proficiency, your band, your bandit's min burner and yeah. you're full up. Oh, my bandit's in full burner. He has been told, this is the only other light gray guy instructor. And he's been told to humiliate me. Well, after three years of Smurf jets and six years of F-15 time, I go out, I mean, I'm defensive. I gun him every engagement. And I'm thinking, well, that's as it should be. I'm full up, he's not. So I didn't think anything of it until later when he told me that, no, no, he was a full up round. <laughs> I got to my squadron and they say, hi, Jeff. Bye, Jeff. We're going to, we're going to Southern Watch and you're not checked out yet. See ya. <laughs> About this time, Biggs takes over as the new wing commander. Yeah. The first airplane to take off after his change of command does not land. It crashes out on the range. Yeah. Uh, was one of the students, uh, student and an instructor. Oh. They both got out. They convened the battle staff, can't find Biggs. They finally find Biggs. He's mowing his lawn. They oh, bring him no. to the command center. He's not on the access roster. It's a SAC command post. So he can't get in. He finally gets in. He sits down at his desk, and none of his telephones work. This is his day one on the job. A week later, I'm at stand-up as the stay-behind operations officer for the squadron. The stay-behind commander is off uh, TDY, which is a whole other story. Great guy, though. The group commander grabs me. Like I said, there's 54 O5s and 16 rated billets for O5s. And he goes, Jeff, we have a job for you. And I'm here in IG getting ready to come out of his lips. And I'm going, oh, please, please no, please no. He goes, Jeff, you're going to be the new chief of the command post. Now, I don't know that this has happened with the command post at this point. Mm -hmm. I know about the crash. I don't know the disaster that happened at the command post with Biggs. I I get educated here real quick because Biggs walks in, looks at the current chief of the command post, rips his head off and uses his neck for a toilet for about 20 minutes. And I'm sitting there going, welcome to your new job. job. (laughs) At least I know the guy that's ripping heads off. Oh, my goodness. About a week later, I go to this guy and I say, when do you want to do the handoff? And he gives me this 2,000-mile stare. Like, what are you talking about? Nobody told him he'd been fired. Uh, So I wait like another week and I show up at the command post and I pick up the phone and I go, hey, I'm a new new kid on the block. I like the nickel tour. 
And the young captain on the other side goes, oh, you're the new boss. Come on in, sir. We'll give you the, the grand tour. Uh, so I'm thinking, oh, good. At least somebody knows I'm coming. I've been in my desk like one day and Biggs calls me to come to his office. This is end of September. Oh, in the meantime, I started going through the, you know, the Air Force operating instructions on the, the regs on the command post and the operating instructions. Now, this is September of 1996. Some of my OIs actually had nines for the first year number, one or two. Most of them are eights, like things that are like 10 years old. And I discovered that by regulation, I have to be certified as a command post officer. So I have to be able to sit at the council, uh, which means I have to go to Dias for command, command post officer school, which is a week long. So Biggs calls me and I sit down at his office. He goes, Jeff, I've already handed you a five gallon bucket of crap. It just got a lot bigger. We just picked up a tactical nuke commitment. Oh, no. You are the only TS facility on the base. Oh. And we're going to put you in charge of air crew training as well. <laughs> oh. oh, it gets better. ACC is coming in December to give you a nuclear standaval assistance visit. In February, you're having a STRATCOM nuke surety inspection. In May, we're having a combined conventional nuclear ORI. After I pick myself off the floor and go back to the command post, I thank my lucky stars that one of my captains is a Minuteman Stanaval officer. Oh, hallelujah. I grab Ken. He's up on the console. I go, come with me, mister. And don't talk to any of the other children. <laughs> and I tell him what's going on. I go, listen, Ken, you and I can build a program that I understand. The lieutenants will understand it. And uh, I got a lot of help from the, uh, the F-111 guys yeah. from my squadron and Better some of the F-4 safety. guys yeah. who had done nukes in UCG yeah. and other places. So I go down to uh, my NCOIC and I go down to command post school, spend a week there, come back. Somewhere in here, I find out about the airman, the, the tech sergeant who's dying. dying. I go down to do his retirement. I also find out that I own, the mock is also in the command post vault. You come in the door of the vault, you go straight, you're in the command post. You turn right, you're in the mock. And I own them, too. Tell everybody what the mock is. Uh, it's the Maintenance Operation Control Center. It's where they track every piece of metal on the airport, its status, what it, you know, its flight status, what it's down for, how long it's been down for, what's wrong with it. I also owned classified that was on the, we were the, Seymour was a test case for it. Yeah. I don't think it ever went anything other than that because the Cipronet was already there. And I think that's what they use now. I don't know. Because I retired. There's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, I know. Anyway, but that was on the other side of the base. And I couldn't keep personnel in there because the IT certifications that these young airmen had, they could make 10 times that they were making in the Air Force (laughs) on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. So the 96 timeframe. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The nukes, the nukes, the ACC guys come down in December and they can't believe how well we're doing. I mean, I've got my ducks in a row. I've already got the air crew starting to get trained up uh, on everything. We're, do, we're doing the classes in the uh, battle staff and everything, going through all the stuff, you know, both squatters. The uh, NSI comes, oh, and I go to Minot in October to watch an NSI. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Well, my NCOs are telling me, Jeff, you're going to, because they've both been there. But Jeff, you're going to love Minot. There's a beautiful blonde behind every tree. <laughs> I get off the airplane 
as far as the eye can see, there is not a tree. Yep. <laughs> yep. Just lots of grass. Lots of grass. Uh, so I had to have special orders to even get on the base for this thing. I show up at the command post. The command post chief is a senior major, and I introduce myself, tell him why I'm there, and I go, listen, I understand you don't want me here. I really don't want to be here, but I need to see this because I have no idea what's going on. If I get in your way, throw me out, but I'm going to be sitting in that corner over there. Now, you've done NSIs, new surety inspections. It is the scariest thing I think I've ever seen at this point because it's all the paperwork inspections of those terrible inspections with the, what were they, management evaluation, MEIs or whatever, the UEIs, plus you're doing ThreatCon Alpha, Bravo, Charlie Delta, you're having airfield attacks, you're having terrorist attacks in the middle of all this. (laughs) And I'm watching this from the sidelines going, you have got to be kidding kidding me. me. Oh, the NSI for us goes great. We get an outstanding. And then the ORI comes first in the middle of the ORI. Like I told you, they killed me because I'm actually sitting on the console one day and I hear the two evaluators behind me going, he's micromanaging this place. He's sitting on the console. We're going to kill him. And I'm sitting there laughing to myself because the airman who's going to take my place, he probably does the job better than I do. (laughs) (laughs) So they kill me. And that's when I find out that this guy wants to be medevaced out, which I told you about earlier. Yeah. Um, And the place didn't skip a beat. So we had a 24 hour break. And then the nuke ORI comes along. The only facility on the base that got an outstanding in both was the command center. Uh, Biggs asked me one of the, you know, about a month later, Biggs asked me what I wanted to do. And I go, boss, I'd like to fly some more. I'd like to go back to the squadron. My reward for being the only unit to get an outstanding in both ORIs was to be the special assistant to my squadron commander, who was two years senior, uh, two years junior to me. Which squadron? Uh, the Rockets. Ah, uh, famous, famous yeah, squadron. The Whiffers. The squadron commander pulls me aside and goes, Jeff, I know you don't want to be here, but I know you're a straight shooter and I'm going to use that to my advantage. Every decision made in this squadron, you're going to be in on. I want you to tell me whether you think I'm full of it or not, or whether you agree with me. I may take your advice. I may not, but I'm going to bounce everything off of you. You're going to know everything that's going on. Uh, right after I moved in, we went to uh, Northern Watch where if, uh, well, Bud Man, you know Bud Man. He was in the um, yeah, Bud Redman. Yeah, he was in the he was in the back seat with John Boy. John Boy, yeah, he was yeah, in John Boy. He was John Boy's uh, Ewo. If Bud Man was flying, I was out with the maintenance guys. When I was flying, Bud Man was out with the maintenance guys. He was the squadron and, commander. Yeah, and so they they basically knew they had two squadron commanders. Yeah. And because everything they told me, they knew was going to get to him. So it was great. I mean, I had a really good time doing the job. I found out that uh, one of the captains had been down at uh, one of our backseaters had worked at uh, Amrock. Amrock, what, what's the Boneyard facility? Oh, Amark. Amark. Anyway, but some civilian wrote his his uh, performance, his fit reps, his fitness oh, report. No. Oh, I, I put because and then he got passed over for major. And I'm looking at this going, oh, my goodness. Kindergartner wrote these things. So I, I got his records. I put everything together and I got it picked up above the zone. <laughs> Good. So then we had a, a major who had been at shape. Army guy had written his performance reports. Same <laughs> thing. Absolute disaster. <laughs> I got him picked up 
yeah. a, a lieutenant colonel above the zone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll never forget that the group commander had all the lieutenant colonels in the O club. Because uh, it was oh six, it was getting to be oh six time for uh, there was a board coming in several months, and I am the senior lieutenant colonel who has not been passed over, and there's like fifty of us in there, and he's telling us how he's going to get us all promoted. <laughs> I'm in the back of the room laughing. I go, I'm a special assistant to a to a guy who's two years junior to me. Yeah, yeah. How does yeah. that how is that going to work out? About this time, Kosovo has been going on for a little while, and Budman has a air crew meeting and goes, guys, it looks like we're going to get orders to go, except we're not going to Italy. We're going to Western Turkey. We Western. are going to attack Kosovo through Bulgaria, and it's going to be just us. And the Bulgarians were brand new NATO members, and they were, they were so, so energetic about getting into this fight. Yeah, so I, I'm at the chaos at this point. I'm seeing all these messages because yes. we're trying to put tankers down with the in Bulgaria, and we actually. I'd have been do. talking on you. I'd have been talking to you on the phone a great deal. Because uh, here's we what would happened. have been talking a great deal. So everybody leaves the room but me, and but and I I put my papers in at this point about a month prior to retire. What day? October first, I think it was. Budman looks at me and goes, "Well, Jeff, what do you want to do?" And I go, well, I've been the stay behind squadron commander ops officer before when you guys went to Southern Watch. He goes, no, nah, I got somebody else already pegged to do that. And he goes, and I go, hey, guess I'm going. And he about hit the floor. He goes, on paper, I was already the air to air mission commander. I was the only light gray guy. I was going to lead the four ship of strike eagles with nothing but slammers. And the other four ship was going to have all the bombs. And he was so thrilled. And I go, can we just get me home for October? He goes, yeah, I think it'll be over by then at the rate we're going. About a week later, I'm home on the weekend. I come back from running some errands. And Debbie goes, uh, a couple guys have called you talking about waivers or something. I didn't know what they were talking about. I, go, I don't know what they're talking about either. Because stop loss had gone into effect on Friday. So my, my retirement orders are canceled. So I go to work on Monday. The group commander has me come over. And he goes, Jeff. I, since you're the senior officer in who's been affected by stop loss, I put you in charge of requesting all the waivers. And I start laughing. Now, this guy, he looks like a pit bull who's ready to take your hand off. And he goes, what's so funny? You go, boss, do you realize what you just did? He goes, no. I go, you just put a pit bull in a room full of rabbits. Who do I dare not piss off? What are they going to do? Kick me out? <laughs> <laughs> he actually laughed which kind of got my I start submitting we actually had a guy who had just gone on terminal leave he was in school at American Airlines and they wanted to recall him that was the only waiver I got approved it's about three three or four weeks later the wing has deployed the jet bigs the maintenance the cops the civil engineers are at this 11,000 foot long piece of concrete in Western Turkey someplace. There's no buildings. There's a runway and taxiways. That's it. That's yeah. all that's there. Yeah. And they're building. And we are in the briefing room because both <laughs> squadrons are going. And the vice wing, and we're getting the quote 280G. I don't think, I don't think they call that anymore. We're in the tanker. Yeah. We're getting a tanker plan to go across the pond. Yeah. The vice wing commander walks in and goes, stand down. Peace broke out. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it was a mess. We're now we're restricted. We have to be within a one hour drive of, of Seymour, which means you can't go to Raleigh. It's about an hour and a half. You can't go to the beach. It's about an hour and a half. There's, so there's no place to go. I still can't sell my house. I still can't, you know, figure out how I'm going to move the kids to get them into school for the school year. And, uh, yeah. So uh, it finally all the dust settles and we're not going anywhere. We're released and they reinstate my orders. And I go, no, <laughs> they want to give me the October date. I go, no, now it's one December. I, I haven't been able to do anything. Yeah. So, so you get pick. picked up by American though. Uh, not initially. Oh. No, uh, I'm actually on terminal leave now at the end of August. I told my wife that if I hadn't heard from anybody by the end of August, by Labor Day weekend, I was going to go find the job. So Labor Day comes and grows and I've got apps out, but nobody's contacting me. So I fly up to Minneapolis to what's called an airing seminar and Continental Express gives me an interview there and hires me on the spot to a, an October class date to the right seat of an RJ. American Eagle offers me a interview on the 29th of September. So I fly down to Dallas and I have my interview with um, American Eagle where I realize I am 44 years old. I'm in the, in this room where most of the people in the room are not half my age. <laughs> They're younger. <laughs> I have my HR interview and this beautiful woman, Vanessa, red hair, very light, uh, black, very light colored black woman, gorgeous. And she looks across the table. She goes, Jeff, I've never interviewed anybody my own age. And I look at her. I go, Vanessa, there's no way on God's green earth you're 44 years old. <laughs> I interviewed her. She's a retired Maryland undercover narc, divorced, and her daughter was then 14 years old. Uh-huh. <laughs> she finally kicks me out. I have now my technical interview with one of their stand of out guys who I think my children are older than him. He's he's showing off. He wants to know all. Now, thankfully, I'd flown the OB-10 so I could speak low altitude. He starts going. He wants me to talk about holding and lower procedure turns, mores, mochas, all this stuff. And I know all this stuff. So he pulls out the L.A. Basin area chart and he goes, why are these some of these airports in bold letters and some of them aren't? And I go, well, normally I would look at the legend, but you're not going to let me do that. And he goes, no. And I'm thinking, you little turd. (laughs) I go, I got the answer. See these in bold letters, big airports, non-bold letters, little airports, big airports, big fire trucks, little airports, little fire trucks. And that was my <laughs> So the next day, I spend the night with a classmate, and he takes me in to meet the American Airlines VP of flight, a guy named Cecil Ewell. Uh, we go upstairs to his office, and the secretary goes, you have five minutes. So we go in. I introduced myself, and the first thing Cecil says is, Jeff, I know your name. Huh? Well, a FedEx package had arrived that morning from another classmate up in Boston <laughs> with oh. my name on it. I didn't even know he'd done it. So we're talking, and Cecil was a Marine F-4 guy in Nam, and he's got his Marine F-4 on his desk, and down the spine it says USS Constellation. And I go, pardon me, Captain Newell, but were you on the with the Connie during Vietnam? He goes, yes, I was. I go, I got a buddy who flew F-8s on the Connie in Vietnam. Do you happen to know so-and-so? And he just stops. He goes, no, he wasn't on the Connie with me. We went to flight school together. <laughs> <laughs> Down goes the anchor, and he yeah. starts telling war stories. So he finally kicks us out. 
the secretary's got laser beams coming out of her eyes because he's missed a meeting. (laughs) So downstairs in the hallway, there's a Starbucks trolley for coffee and stuff. So Dave and I, my buddy, are standing there talking to a couple of his friends. And Cecil walks by and he sees me and he points at me and motions me to come over. So I walk over and he looks at me and goes, October, package in October, interview in November. And he walks off. So I go back to Dave and Dave goes, so what are you saying? So I told him, he goes, ah, welcome to American Airlines. (laughs) So now I go home and then I get hired by American Eagle. And I elect to go with Eagle versus Continental Express. There's a lot of reasons, but so first day of class is October 18th, middle of October. I call home that night to let Debbie know how much money I am not making. Uh, And she goes, well, a package came for you from American Airlines. And I go, what's it say? She goes, well, I didn't open it. <laughs> I go, open it. Open it. So she opens it, and it's my interview package. She FedExes it to me. So while I'm in training at American Eagle, I have my American interview, because it's right there, yeah. my American okay. medical. There was a hiccup in our training, which I'm not going to go into, but we're delayed. And I'm home between Christmas and New Year's. It is Friday, December 30th, 4 p.m. in my house. My phone rings. I don't have caller ID. I answer the phone and this woman's voice go, hello, this is Patty Taylor from American Airlines. I'm looking for Jeff Feldman. I go, yes, ma'am, that's me. I know who you are, <laughs> chief of hiring. Yeah. She goes, well, Jeff, I'd like to offer you a class date at American Airlines. Uh, I'm military. There's rules of engagement in here someplace, but I just don't know what they are. <laughs> and I go, I bet you uh, she does. <laughs> uh, uh, I have to check with Eagle. And serious as a heart attack, she goes, you're with Eagle? Yeah. I'm dying inside going, oh, did I just screw up? She goes, Jeff, let me tell you the situation. You are my last phone call for the holiday weekend. Starting January 1st, we're enforcing a policy that until you've been with American, uh, American Eagle for a year, you can't come to American Airlines. So would you like that class date? Sure. How long do you think you told me to say yes? I couldn't get it out fast enough. Yeah. We stay on the phone for about another half an hour going over everything, Mm -hmm. except now it's pushing five o'clock. I can't get a hold of anybody at American Eagle. So I fly down to Dallas on the first to get a night check ride in the airplane because the SIM didn't count. On my way back through Dallas, I finally... It's a weekday. I finally find somebody at home at American Eagle to talk to. I tell them what's going on, and I'm supposed to start my initial checkout out of uh, JFK in a couple of days. And they go, well, plan on doing your training. We'll call you if anything changes. So I hop in the van from the training academy over to the airport to fly home, and my phone rings on the way to the airport. Stay home. <laughs> so I never flew a passenger at American Eagle. <laughs> I got completely checked out, never flew a passenger. Oh my goodness. So, and so I did that for 20 years, retired uh, not quite two years ago. Yeah. So, which jets did you fly with American? Uh, I did uh, 65 hours, six weeks sitting sideways on the 727 panel. That's an unnatural act. Nothing you do on that panel has anything to do with being a pilot. <laughs> I'm sure it's a strange uh, situation for a fighter guy, too. You're, you're a plumber. 
then I went to the 767, flew international, did mostly Europe, a little bit of South America, some Caribbean. And then I did that. And then I got, after 9-11, I went onto the Super 80, or as I called it, what most of us called it, the Stupid 80. Never flown an airplane so intent on getting me violated. <laughs> you know, the mode, the mode control panel where you set your altitude and your yeah. airspeed, you know, that kind of stuff. That was a wish list. You wish it would do those things. <laughs> it probably wouldn't. jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, did that for three years. Got back on the 767. Well, let's put it this way. In 2006, I did a recurrent, five-day, a four-day recurrent on the Super 80 in the spring, a week-long requalification on the 7.5 in the summer, and a full qualification on the A300 in the fall. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, jeez. The one thing about the Air Force is there were standards. Standards. Yeah. Uh, the one thing in American, there were standards only by fleet. Everything from how you set your altimeter to what you called your flaps was different by fleet. Really? Doing, doing three schools in one year, I couldn't remember what was what. <laughs> That's it's interesting. Not that way. That's it's, fascinating. It, it took a while, but they fixed it. So I did the A300 for a couple of years, got back on the 767. Then I went to the, 730, then I went to the 737. That was, that was a fun airplane to fly. Uh, ended up uh, four years as a captain on that, flying international. I did fly the Max. I flew it. I never flew it before either one of the, before the accident, before the first MCAS accident. I flew it the day after we got the uh, air direct, airworthiness directive on how to fly yeah. the airplane. Yeah. And I flew from LA to uh, DC in it. It handles just like a regular 7.3. It, you, it, except it's got more freaking power than you know what to do with. I'm pretty much max weight. And I release the brakes and the airplane's moving. <laughs> I love CFM 56 engines. Uh, that's not what they are. They're bigger on the max. I know they are, but they're, th huge. they're one of the most reliable engines that has ever probably ever flown. Well, the CFM. Yeah. Yeah. Great um, engines. So <laughs> since you've flown the max, explain to our listeners what happened in the two accidents and, and why. Okay. I don't remember now what MCAS stands for. Min control, airspeed, stabilization, or something like that. Anyway, the system was put on the airplane for one small micro pocket of the flight envelope. And uh, what it was designed to do is stop you from getting the nose stuck up in the air. Because mm -hmm. the had to do with the fact that the engines were pushed out forward yes. from the leading edge of the wing, which when you push the thrust up, it would just pitch the nose up in the air and you would be able to, you didn't have enough nose authority if you were too slow. None of us knew it was there. The maintenance guys didn't know it was there. The pilots didn't know it was there. The airlines didn't know it was there. The companies themselves, only Boeing knew it was on the airplane. So the guys in Indonesia take off the day prior, it works off angle of attack and their angle of attack probes are broken. So this system thinks that the airplanes in this part of the envelope Fortunately, these guys recover the airplane by just dumb luck. The next day, maintenance looks at the airplane, don't find anything wrong. And the next day, uh, this crew doesn't know how to deal with it. Unfortunately, both, in both accidents, neither accident crew ever turned the auto throttles off, ever came out of takeoff power. They're, they got the throttles all the way forward, which is only making their problem worse because the NCAS system takes control of the trim wheel and runs it all the way 
full nose down. And at high speed, you yeah. can't pull back. That's the first accident in, in Indonesia. The second one, it's Erythiopia. They actually have a Mac simulator. And by this point, there is a remedy on an emergency procedure to handle this system if it happens yeah. to fire incorrectly. They do the procedure and elect to undo the procedure. So the Ethiopian guys have figured out, um, they know the procedure. Uh, it is a Czech airman, so a standabout guy, and a brand new co-pilot who has very limited flying experience. I mean, like only a couple hundred hours. Some of that is Flight Simulator 10. They have a t- My understanding is they have a tail strike on takeoff. At some point in here, they lose one of the angle of attack probes, which causes the system to fire. So the nose goes full down. Thankfully, they, the, I guess the stand out guy did it, ran the checklist, and he th- turns off the system. For some reason, which they never figure out that, that I know of, they turn it back on. Oh, jeez. And they hit the ground in full power. And like a vertical dive, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I messed around with it uh, in the sim. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't allowed to, to play with it. But I, I messed around with the trim where I would try to run the trim full down and how I could fly the airplane because we have a man. Well, you know, and the 135, yeah, the problem is when you have full nose down trim you and you're pulling it. back on the yoke, you can't turn that wheel on the original 737s, the 100s and the 200s. They used to do this system called roller coaster where they would just haul back on the stick as hard as they could get the nose up in the air for this runaway trim problem, release the pressure. And then the other guy goes to bed, goes to town on the trim wheel while yeah. it's unloaded so he can yeah. move it. Then the airplane starts to nose down again. They pulls back yep. again and you keep on doing this roller coaster until you get the trim under control. We do the same thing in the 135. If yeah. we had runaway stack. I was trim. surprised when that did not come back into our training, but it, as last I knew it did not. It was a shame because like I said, our mechanics didn't know about it. Our pilots didn't know about it. It wasn't anywhere in our manuals. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't in any of the manuals that Boeing supplied to the uh, users. Only Boeing knew about it. And have you seen a picture of George Air Force Base where they parked all these things until they could see it? <laughs> yeah. Oh well, they're God. all flying again. Yeah, Most I know. I know. But it looked like a third of the Southwest fleet was parked around George Air Force Base for a long yeah, time. Yeah, Southwest took a really big hit because like 25% of their fleet at the time was Max's. Yeah. When they got grounded, I mean, American only had 12 or was it 12 or 24? I think it was 24 because 12 were parked at Tulsa. Another 12 were parked at uh, Fort Worth. But they were, I mean, they were parked for a long time. A very long time. And I don't time. think the Chinese are letting them fly yet. So. That doesn't surprise me. You know, I'm sure there's other airlines that are like going, mm, I don't think we've got this thing figured out yet. Yeah. But I know Boeing took a huge, oh. huge hit for this. But they were taking hits for other things too, like the KC-46 that's not fixed yet. Now this comes up, you know, just crazy stuff. I just saw something. Um, I, I'm in, the, in this aviation group and a bunch of them are at Oshkosh right now. And one of the guys posted in the chat that uh, the case, they said, he said that he was told the 46 can only refuel F-18s. No, that list has gotten quite a bit bigger that's now. What, yeah, that's what I thought too. They're about, I think, between 85 and 90% through the receiver list. The problem is with the big airplanes like the C-17 and the C-5. 
there's these weird loads that get on the boom and they haven't figured it out yet. Like weird lateral loads or something like that, that low observable airplanes, it was really critical too, because they were basically carving their initials in the airplane, you know, with the, with the nozzle. Yeah, yeah, with the nozzle. There was, there was a lot of there was a lot of issues and they still don't have it worked out. The remote vision system is like it's RVS 2.0 now and there's still some problems with it. They're working it out, but the airplane is years behind, billions of dollars over budget, and they're going to have a another competition. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Lockheed Martin and Airbus have now joined forces together with the A330. Yeah. Offering I, the A330. Well, so they're going to bring that bring that back. Well, somebody's already flying 330 tankers, aren't they? The guess what? The A330 has won the last five tanker competitions internationally. Well, brother, you and I've been talking for two and a half hours now. That's a short you and one. I could for us. keep going for a lot longer than this. That's a short one for us. <laughs> uh, that's a short one for us. Yeah. Yeah. Two hours is pretty much our standard, isn't it? <laughs> but there's some great stuff that you have here. Jeff, and thank you. Thank you once again for being on the Lessons from the Cockpit show and being here with us today. Well, Mark, like I said before, I know uh, when you started this, I've been very impressed with the quality of the people you've got, which is why I still can't figure out why you're talking to me. The lessons learned that you've gotten from just yourself, your three roles from pilot training and uh, all the other lessons learned from the guys you've had, from the striking guys, the A-10 guys, the Harrier, not the Harrier, the Hornet guys. It's It's been um, a real joy to listen to these stories. One, to hear your voice because you and I go back so far. We and do. Uh, some great stories of our own. But I appreciate you having me on and I've really enjoyed this time. Thanks again for being with me, okay? All righty. I'm going to have my good friend Jeff Felmuth on another time. He's got an incredible 9-11 story and the things that happened to him as he was coming back from a trip in South America. And I may do a series of all my buds that got stuck out during 9-11. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen to this and previous episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast from my website, marcusera.com, under the, under the podcast pull-down box. The Lessons from the Cockpit Show is financially supported by wallpilot.com, aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. These are four, six, and eight foot images that you can peel off. Some people just frame them and put them on your walls. World War II all the way to modern fighters. Really detailed stenciling on these things, even the arm and key handles on the Sidewinder missiles. So please, all of you, go to wallpilot.com, look at the ready-to-print area, and order one of these prints for your walls. We also do custom work, which is a little more expensive, but again, we've done all the way up to a 30-footer for one guy in his hangar. The F-15C and the F-15E that Jeff Felmuth flew, you can order for your walls by just looking at the show notes below. Thanks for joining us once again on the Lessons from the Cockpit show. Next week, we're going to do the history of air refueling from 1921 and the very first effort to refuel another airplane, a bi-wing Curtis Jenny, all the way up to the shock and awe campaign in Iraq in 2003. I'm your host, Marcus Era, and look forward to talking to you again next week.